All right, everybody, just about to get going with the next session. Should be a good one. Welcome to session room number one. Uh, please take your seats whenever you're, whenever you can, as soon as possible, actually, because we're just about to get going. Um, for those of you who are just joining us in this room, my name is Sean Angus with the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. Uh, thanks for joining us today for the Cannabis Conference. This day really meant a lot to our staff. Uh, a lot of great info shared. We knew it had the potential to be uh, very informative for the business community, which it certainly has been. So today, our, this session is called Cannabis Legalization and Regulations. And it will be with Sergeant Carol McDonald of the Winnipeg Police Service. Just a little background on uh, Sergeant Carol McDonald. Uh, she's in her 25th year of policing and she's spent time in uniform, plain clothes, uh, inve plain clothes investigations and, uh, she, and she has a combined 16 years experience in the world of drugs and gangs having worked in the Vice Division Drug Unit, Vice Division Gang Unit, uh, Organized Crime Unit and Marijuana Grow Operations Unit as well. Currently, Carol is the strategy coordinator for the uh, drug, street crime, and organized crime units. She is the supervisor of the Violent Offender Risk Assessment Unit and one of the uh, WPS coordinators for the legalization of cannabis. Please help me welcome Sergeant Carol McDonald. Thank you. Hi, everyone. You'll notice on that long list of experience that public speaking isn't on it. So I hope I'm not hiding behind this too much. I don't walk around when I talk, but uh, so bear with me. Um, this is new technology here, so I will do the best I can. Okay, don't hit the podium because the mic does that. And here we go. Okay, so um, small crowd, that's good. If you have any questions, by all means interrupt me and throw your hand up and I'll try to answer them best I can as I go through the slides. I have 30 slides. 30 slides, that's better. Um, so I understand we're going to have about 45 minutes with questions and answers. So I may flip through a couple of them pretty fast. Uh, a lot of this will be routine for some of you and some of it overlaps with Con uh, Constable Stefan Fontaine's presentation from the, the previous hour. If you were witness to his, um, I've got some of the same information. We went over our, each other's today, so I apologize for that, but review is good. So the two main components that we deal with in marijuana is um, the THC, which is a psychoactive ingredient, and the CBD, the medicinal ingredient. Um, marijuana is uh, a plant which you can smoke or you can extract the oil out of it. Um, I suppose you could eat it just as it is, but it would probably taste like grass. Um, so the strains and species here, and just before I came here today, I noticed a, a mistake. I've got, uh, here it's, I've got indica is good for outdoors. It's actually indoors, this should be indoors here. So the two main species or strains are sativa and indica. Um, the different uh, ways they grow long and skinny plants for sativa, they're good for growing outdoors. They take about one to two months longer to grow. And 
this plant gives you the feelings of well-being, stimulants, um, or stimulates and uh, energizes and increases your creativity. Indica is a short and wide plant. These are the chosen plant for growing indoors, not outdoors. Um, they relieve the pain, relax the muscles, anxiety, stress, and headaches. Um, Ruderalis is a third uh, um, strain and uh, very low in THC but high in CBD. So what they do is they, they make hybrids. They mix the two plants, um, which is way above my, my understanding how they do that. But just like any other making a hybrid rose, for example, they're going to mix the two plants based on what they want out of it. So just a review of how it's grown. You're going to start with your seedling plant, seedling or clones. Um, back in the day, these, these used to sell in the black market for about $5 a clone. Then they grow up to be teenagers or in the vegetative state. So these are a little bit higher in THC, but they won't be um, what is used to smoke or ingest. And uh, the budding or flowering stage. And of course, the, budding, the bud is what you're going to um, cut off the plant to use for um, the biggest bang for your buck for THC. The leaves can be stripped off the plant and it's called shake. And you can um, soak the shake in isopropyl alcohol and get resin out of it. It's almost an archaic format or form to do it now, but um, they're doing it a lot differently with solvents and uh, um, a whole different apparatus to extract the resin. And then of course, in order to grow the plants indoors, you're gonna need uh, the ballasts, which are on the left which is basically a little transformer. You'll see the lights on the right, the shields with the lights over top of the plants. Each shield and light um, is a thousand watts and each one of those has a ballast on the left. And you can imagine the enormous amount of heat that would um, give off in a, in a basement, especially in these older structured homes. It's a really bad fire hazard for us. So the resin, when you extract the resin from the plant, you can get shatter, honey oil, butter, dab, um, there's the hash, hashish, hashish, sorry. Anybody here from the 80s? We don't see that very often anymore. But, and these are all just different ways um, of processing, extracting the resin out of the plant. Some of it's with water, some of it's with solvents. There's a dry ice method. Each method is going to give you a different end result that you can ingest. So you get the plant material, you make it into the oil, and then the oil and butter or um, shatter, etc., can be used to make the edibles. And edibles, there's no end to what you can make with edibles. Um, I've seen everything from dog treats, ice cream, drinks, tea, candy, of course, baked goods, chocolates, you name it, lotion, oil, it's in there. I guess it's uh, limited by your own imagination. The thing about edibles is that they're colorful. Um, if you see them from BC, they come in the mail from one company, they're all uh, colorful packaging. They have happy faces on them, so they're very appealing to children, which really bothers me because these are upwards of 80% um, potency, and a child could easily overdose on those. And just by way of pricing, this is the black market pricing that we have. Um, it's probably changed a little bit since legalization, or will it, is expected to change a little bit. I don't know what 30 grams in the stores, in the Delta 9 you're here, do, what does 30 grams sell for of legal? Sorry? Over 300? It, it would depend on the strain and the amount of THC in it and everything else. Um, so our black market value is 200 to 280 dollars. 
for an ounce, which is very close to 30 grams, right? Just for comparison purposes. And the bigger the bulk quantity, the lesser the price is gonna be. Short-term effects, I'm sure everybody knows this. Decreased attention span, red glossy eyes, drowsiness, desire to laugh, uh, slurred speech, munchies, slow reaction time, poor coordination, that kind of stuff. Long-term effects. Um, difficulty learning, problem solving, short-term memory problems, decreased motivation. Uh, everybody knows about the kid that's living in mom's attic. attic. Uh, low energy, loss of interest, and developmental problems in children. So this is just kind of Cannabis 101. I think everybody pretty much knows this kind of thing. And then the legalization part of it. Is there any questions on the actual components of cannabis? It goes way deeper, of course, into the science of it. I'm not the person to talk to that, but everyone understands so far. So my world is the governing acts and regulations. Um, I've got some notes written on my page here, so let me just bring it down. Make sure I'm following along. So these are just, these are the main acts that I've um, had to basically study and there's so much information in here. That's why I put my head, it exploded beside it. Um, Bill C-25 is an act that amends all acts. And it's acts like child exploitation, drivers and vehicles, highway traffic, mental health, uh, non-smokers health protection act, which the name has changed, off-road vehicles act, and the public schools act. So Bill C-25 amends that act, all those acts to put the word cannabis in there where it should be. Um, the Cannabis Act, of course, is the, is the main governing body that we deal with. Bill C-46 is what Steph Fontaine basically spoke about in the last session um, regarding all the conveyances of the cannabis. Safe and Responsible Retailing of Cannabis Act is what the uh, Liquor, Gaming and Cannabis Authority is basically governing with the retail sales of it, just like it says. Highway Traffic Act and Smoking and Vapor Products Control Act which has changed names about three times in the last year. So in a nutshell, people are permitted to carry and share up to 30 grams of cannabis or its equivalent. Um, it must be stored properly if in a vehicle. In other words, if your bottle of wine is behind your seat, it's corked, it's fine, that's, that's legal. If cannabis is behind your seat, it's not legal. It's gotta be in your trunk or further in your hatchback of a SUV or, or something like that, not in your glove box. And sharing cannabis does not mean selling it to anybody. It's only sharing it amongst friends or people that are over 19, 19 and over. And the equivalents, I'm not sure if you've seen this yet or not, but you see the, the column on the right-hand side. Um, 30 grams is what the legal limit is for dried cannabis on the left. The legal limits of everything else that are on the right that follow along, so fresh cannabis, meaning right harvested plant material. You have solids such as edibles, butters, and soaps. 450 grams, so that's almost a pound. 454 grams is a pound. Non-solids are the topical oils, vaping oils, lotions. You're allowed to carry 2,100 grams or less of that. Solid concentrates, hashish, wax, shatter, seven and a half grams. Same with weed oil, honey oil, and then 30 plant seeds. So even though edibles aren't legal, legally sold in retail stores right now, you are allowed to buy 30 grams of legal. Um, cannabis and make your own oils out of that and the Health Canada website says provided it's in a safe manner but there's no instructions on how to do that in a safe manner so people routinely cause fires and blow themselves up 
Uh, drug impaired driving laws, just to touch on this because it's already been covered in Steph's presentation. Um, following along the li lines of an alcohol or impaired driving laws by alcohol, um, standard field sobriety testing, drug recognition experts, roadside screening devices, which is the Drager 5000, and the usual blood demands for the drug impaired driving. And of course, all of our evidence has to follow along just like um, alcohol impaired driving. We have to have the manner of driving grounds to pull you over and then those signs and symptoms that we formulate a picture for the court later on. And I saw the Draker 5000 today. It's aptly named because it's a $5,000 piece of machinery. And it's like a Keurig machine. You take the sample and you put this little device in, you push this thing down and then it does its thing and spits out a result. It's pretty neat. It's probably more scientific than that. <laughs> um, Highway Traffic Act cannot consume cannabis in a vehicle in a public place, which is interesting because some would argue that it's fine to smoke cannabis in a vehicle in your driveway, but then you're risking the care and control problems of the impaired driving. Um, so just be cognizant of that. And a, a, a highway, um, a public place on a highway, it still means if you drive your car to a Walmart parking lot, and want to smoke a joint before you go in, that's still technically a highway, and of course, in a public place, you're not allowed to do that. Cannot be a supervising driver while high, if your son or daughter is um, a beginner driver. I don't think it's called beginners anymore. Um, you can't be high when you're in the passenger seat. And up to 30 grams of cannabis can be transported in a vehicle out of reach of all occupants. And if, you're, <clears throat> if you and your three friends are in a taxi or an Uber on New Year's Eve, then each of you can carry 30 grams from point A to point B. Smoking and Vapor Products Control Act. Um, like I said, permitted in the residence and yard only, not in a public place. So this doesn't mean you can smoke out outside of a business, city or provincial park, sidewalk, um, or in your vehicle, like I just, that's what I just went over, or on the balcony. Um, a balcony is not considered a yard. So just because it's your apartment or your condo, the balcony is not um, part of your yard by definition. Now that's where we're gonna have challenges because the property managers, if you live in a non-smoking or a smoking apartment or condo, because of the legalization laws that just came into effect, they can now, um, what's the document? The, the tenancy agreement can be changed or altered um, to say that there's no cannabis allowed. So even though you're allowed to smoke cigarettes in your apartment, they can uh, create a document that says you're not allowed to smoke cannabis. And that's where you're going to be finding challenges in court. And for medical cannabis, you can expect challenges with that as well because medical cannabis is a lot different than the laws surrounding medical cannabis is a lot different than the laws surrounding legalization. Um, if we were to be called to, we, you know, in my career I've been called many times to an apartment block with the neighbor saying apartment 402 smoking marijuana. But we, need to, we need to have grounds to get in there. Um, if we could tell the marijuana smoke was coming from that apartment, that's grounds to a certain extent. But now with legalization and with medical cannabis, we're staying completely away from it. So when the police get called, it's usually at the time when there's a dispute between the two parties, unfortunately, which is not good for anybody, but that's, that's what I see is happening now. So in Manitoba, you're not allowed to cultivate any plants. Um, federal law says one to four. Five and up is, is illegal. Uh, cannabis says no plants. 
So if anybody is cultivating one to four plants, it's uh, a fine, $2,542 fine. So if you have a domestic with your spouse and the police walk in and see this, then that's bad, unless you have a medical permit, which almost everybody does, so I don't know why you wouldn't. Um, so there's your fine, $2,542. Second offense is an arrest, of course. Five or more plants in Canada. Now there's a there's the federal ticketing regime. Um, there is no federal ticket, so it's an appearance notice, and if we give an appearance notice, it's with prints, which is an arrest. So it's kind of semantics as to whether or not it's a federal ticketing problem with five to six plants. Um, seven or more is a criminal offense. You can see why my head explodes. If you want to get arrested, because a lot of people do like spending time with us sometimes, we're nice people. Um, grow five or more plants, possess more than 30 grams, possess any amount of illegal cannabis, or sell it for profit in any form, legal or illegal. So these are just some fines, that uh, the big fines I laid out, and then uh, the average fines, they're still big fines to me, the $672 ones. Authorized sale of cannabis, so if uh, one of the retail sellers were to sell to the uh, to an intoxicated person, or, well, it's actually a different fine, um, or to a young person, it's 2,542. Um, intoxicated person, cultivate cannabis at a residence, we've been over that. So it just gives you an idea as to what some of the um, provincial laws are. So cannabis for a medical purpose, like I said, the, it's like railroad tracks, right? They don't ever really cross. Um, with a medical authorization, you are permitted to smoke in a public place to some extent, eight meters from outdoor entrances of healthcare facilities, um, city of Winnipeg workplaces, within 30, not within 30 meters of athletic fields, community centers, or pools. I see another typo there in my seat. Um, but the interesting thing about a medical authorization is you have to prove to the police that you have a medical authorization. Um, the next slide tells me how to do that, but. So if, if it's legalized, if it's legal marijuana, you don't have to prove it's legal. We can ask, but you don't have to tell us. You don't have to show a receipt or packaging from the legal retailer. But for medical, you do. So that's one of the many holes in these regulations as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and this, these are the documents that you can use to prove to the police that you have a medical authorization. A registra registration document from the lic licensed producer with the information regarding the daily dose and the patient details, or, or a registration certificate from Health Canada. Some people still actually register with Health Canada, but you're not required to do so by, um, anymore, and a license issued by Health Canada. So just, I've just got a couple more slides left just on the uh, differences between medical marijuana and homegrown. This isn't a plug for any um, licensed producer here. Um, I just, we've done some testing and Delta 9 was good enough to help us do this a, a year or two ago. We took down 15 random illegal grow operations and sent 15 samples from each one of them to a private lab, which was Delta 9, and they tested it for us. Um, the results are on the next page, but basically each one of them came back in, unfit for human consumption. Um, they don't have any standards in the basement grow, and this is where the medical users, the organized crime element of the medical authorizations are, um, they're growing and they're saying it's medical but it's contaminated with all these uh, heavy metals and salmonella and all these other 
toxic elements um, because there's no standards. You go to a, a legal, a licensed producer, they're regulated by Health Canada, so it's all clean and non-toxic marijuana, not contaminated with anything. Uh, this is the results from the 15 samples that we had tested. So the THC ranged between 4 and 21%. The CBDs were less than 1% in every single sample. So if somebody's saying, I'm using this for medical purposes, there's no CBD in it whatsoever. Um, unacceptable levels of, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce those names, is Cherichia. Um, Several samples were positive for the microorganism which causes bronchial infections and uh, all samples came back incredibly large amounts of salmonella and were all unfit for human consumption. And these are the, these are the grows that are hiding behind the medical authorizations. And that is all I have. I know I flew through that. That's, that's going to be a record 11 minutes. Does anybody have any questions? Yep. without a medical authorization. Well, and that's right out of my element. So I don't know if, if in Manitoba that the federal government, can everybody hear me? If that trumps the federal government, I'm not sure. Because I don't, I don't know about the, the indigenous laws, to be honest with you. But as far as I'm concerned, the federal government allows everybody to grow one to four plants. In Manitoba, it says none. And from what I'm told, it's province-wide. But there may be there may be a little possible. Well, as I understand it, it's different with different federal jurisdictions. Okay. Right? The laws to grow and sell, yes, but you can't have a store. You can't have a store uh, that's unlicensed to the province on reserve. Right. But well, that's that's a whole federal, other thing. Yeah. Because it's federal, then jurisdiction, you can't grow those four plants. And my question then was. Um, in terms of, let's say I went to Delta and I bought 10 grams of their product, can I give away any of that? Like, you know, people go to people's houses at Christmas, bring them all away. So can it be given away? Yeah, you can share up to 30 grams of legal cannabis with somebody 19 or older. So you can't give it to a 15-year-old, but you can give it to somebody 19 and older. Does that mean that's a factor? Well, we can't... We can't get you to prove, you're not required to prove you bought it legally, but that's the law that, that says it has to be the legal marijuana, the legal cannabis. <coughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And I can't see you either. Sorry. Um, plus, if uh, he gets the same If he gets the 30, if he, if he gets, gets four gifts of 10 grams, I put him over 30 grams. Right, yeah. Now, if you're at home, there's no limit to say you're allowed to only possess 30 grams at home. So you can go to a retail place and buy 30 gram packages all day long and transport 30 grams of it home and have 150 grams of legal cannabis at home. That's not an offense because you can only have 30 grams in a public place. So there's nothing, there's another hole that says there's no limit to what you can have legal in your house. 
but one gram illegal in your house is illegal. <laughs> Who's going to enforce that? I don't know. Yeah, I've seen a, a huge shift. So in 2001, when I first got to the, the, it was the Vice Division Drug Unit then, I've been in organized crime twice since. Um, I, I actually kept a spreadsheet of all the arrests we were making just on grows. And there was one demographic that seemed to have all the big grows. And fast forward 2004, there was enough work to have our own unit. So the chief at the time um, brought eight members together for the green team, which changed into the marijuana grow operation unit and ran from 2004 until 2016 with the medical licenses. So all those people on my spreadsheet, 900 plus people on my spreadsheet where I've um, found different organized crime cells across Canada that you know they just intertwine and everybody connected to everybody and how you find it like, a, like any other intelligence, right? Um, they're all still operating, they just have medical licenses right now. So if I could plug in my thumb drive and find a chart. But like, would you say people buying on the street, Well, I don't have those stats because most, most people are going to continue buying from the black market because it's cheaper. Uh, it's organized crime black market because those are the ones that are growing. So the Hell's Angels groups are into the meth. They're not. They're they're into cannabis as well, but that's not their first commodity. They're they're making a lot more money off of meth because it's so readily available and it's cheap and everything else. So the cannabis is happening or is still held by another demographic, and it's not really even an organized crime uh, or an organized gang like the Hell's Angels. But they're moving it out of Manitoba for whatever reason by the truckload or boatload or however it's, it's leaving here. So with eight members, we can't, we can't sit on, on a house and find out where it's going. We can only try to take down the grow, which is definitely spinning our wheels. But the medical marijuana licenses essentially put us out of business. You can see the amount of grows that we can, we can take down, so. Anybody else? Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah? And we used to have we would take down three grows a week at 600 to 1,000 plants. And for the last five years, they've dwindled to 140 to 250 plants. And now they all have, they all have licenses for anywhere. I've, the biggest authorized grow I've seen is 392 plants. Tried that. I've tried every avenue I know how. I've talked to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. I've turned people in. I've tried to find doctors to tell me, like, 
please, if anybody in this room knows why somebody needs 80 grams per day to use, I would like to know that. Like, I, I want to know, like, shouldn't there be a public health announcement to say what that guy has so no one else gets it, so we don't all have to smoke 80 grams a day? Like, I don't understand the amount. And that's not even, that's only 280 plants a month. Or 280 plants, I should say, plus the storage. I've seen 392. Like, I want to know what that guy has. You know, what is wrong with this person? Because that's pretty serious. Or they're trafficking it. Yeah. And when we go into these places with warrants, there's no indication that they even smoke it or, or juice it or cook with it. I mean, they don't have an oven that works because they've hooked the power up to their oven, so they have a propane hot plate with a propane tank in their kitchen and cupboards and cupboards and cupboards and cupboards full of packaging material. That's a clue. But I'm a sarcastic seasoned police officer, so. Uh, my question that revolves around the uh, impairment. Um, as employers, we've heard today that uh, if we have a reasonable uh, cause to send somebody away for testing, and it's found through the test that the individual is indeed impaired, is there any obligation If he's just impaired in the workplace and not committing a crime, then no, that's going to be handled internally. If he's operating a vehicle impaired or something to that effect, then the police could be called for sure. Okay, that's where I was going. If we had reasonable cause for taking somebody out of a piece of equipment or driving, and it's being the test comes back positive, he or she is being impaired, then there will be an obligation to notify the police? There's no obligation. Um, if I was an employer and you can and nothing happened catastrophically where somebody got hurt or injured and you just found this out and can take the keys away from the person to prevent the continuation of the offense, then that's completely within your right to do so. Because when we find somebody, when police find somebody driving impaired, we have a driving history for the drive impaired charge, and then we have the drive over 0 .08, which is proof that he's over his legal limit for alcohol, as an example, right? So there's two charges that go with an impaired, a driving history, he was bouncing off the curbs, he hit three vehicles, he ran over a kid, whatever the case may be, or just weaving in his lane, forgetting to signal, it could be any number of things, speed. That's the driving history, that's the drive impaired charge, so impaired by alcohol or drug. If you witness that, then you would have that evidence. And then when you do the sample and you find out that he is over his legal limit, then that's the drive over 0 0.08 or whatever, I think it's five nanograms um, for the impaired charge. So we would do the scientific result of the over the impairment. If we don't see him operating a vehicle while impaired, that would either be your evidence if you saw that or um, that wouldn't be a charge. If there's no driving history, for example, you just found out and took his keys away and you didn't see him driving anything, then that we couldn't possibly charge him with impaired driving because we need that driving history for evidence. Does that make sense? It does. I just want to um, be clear on we observe, we retain, we test, the test comes back positive, there's impairment. Is it our obligation as an employer to bring this forward? 
not unless anybody's hurt. So you don't, you don't have to. You're not going to get in trouble for not reporting that, but you certainly can report it. It's a, it's a crime of drive impaired, right? So if he, if he injured a child or something, then I think you're more obligated than if he didn't injure anybody, for example. We went back and forth on that as a, as a company, for lack of a better word, as a service. Um, ultimately, it's, it was the chief's decision. We voted zero tolerance, um, and the chief came back and said fit for duty. So, I mean, it's, I'm, again, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how long it's going to take for marijuana to be out of the system. I've heard up to 28 days depending on the tolerance, what you eat physiologically, just say alcohol, how much it burns off, metabolizes, metabolizes slower in women than it does in men, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old school. I, I grew up not, you can't smoke marijuana if you want to be a police officer. So to me, zero tolerance is completely acceptable because I know I'll never do it. But you're talking about you know, people that are 15 right now that in five years want to get onto the police and it's commonplace because someday it will be. Um, why can't they smoke it and be fit for duty? And why is it different for police officers compared to a delivery driver of some kind, right? So. I think if you dig down far enough, it would be a human rights issue if he said zero tolerance. Which is appalling to me, <laughs> but yeah, and it's difference of opinion. So you can choose not to come in hungover in the morning to work, and you can choose not to be high when you come in to work, or some guys do. I've sent guys home in my past that I that I was supervising. They came in from a night of drinking, full uniform. Good for you for making it in for seven o'clock, but you're not getting in a cruiser car. Like go home, you're sick today. You know, or sorry, get your buddy to drive you home because you're sick today. But people do it because they don't, like, you know, young guys or, or people just make bad decisions or they have a problem or any number of reasons, right? Nobody's perfect and, and police certainly aren't. So it'll be interesting to see the next couple of years how it plays out and what changes are made. One more question if anyone has. I have one question. There is, how easy is it to detect uh, if a driver has been well, again, it would depend on experience of the officer. Like, it would be a lot easier for me to detect it than somebody who's been on for two years because I've lived it for the last 10. Um, it also depends on the person's uh, tolerance. If he's a, a very avid smoker or just tried it for the first time, how much THC was in that joint he just smoked? Was it 2% or was it 22%? You know, it's, 
So it could be any number of things, but basically it's the visuals, just like um, alcohol impairment, with the red glossy eyes and the slurred speech and slow movements and kind of thing, right? So it could be the smell of the car that twigs the officer to go, hmm, and then look closely at the individual. You know, it's a big picture we have to paint for court. Last chance, so I love the last question. Well, okay, how about a uh, round of applause for Sergeant Carol McDonald? Okay. And uh, we have a gift for uh, Sergeant McDonald here just for joining us today. Uh, just to thank you uh, for sharing your expertise and sort of ending off the day on a, uh, a great note with some great information. Thank you.